Ecclesiastes is where we're at today, chapter 11. If you are new to the Bible, just go to the middle, find Psalms, then Proverbs, then Ecclesiastes. It's part of the wisdom literature in Scripture, a lot of Proverbs and wise sayings. In Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 1 through, seven, one through 6, we'll find our text for this morning. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as I read it, and then let's get into God's Word together. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not, know, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will, will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you don't know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. I'm going to title my sermon simply this today, Work Hard. Work Hard. Let's pray and ask God for His help as we study it. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this book of Ecclesiastes. We ask that You would help us as we, as we study this morning. Help me to preach and speak with passion Your truths, not merely my ideas, that You would open our hearts to shape us according to Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Beyond here are dragons. Ancient maps of the old world contained images of beasts and monsters in areas that were unknown and unexplored. Unlike the detail of our modern maps today, which detail all of the roads and the cities, even the topography, maps of the old world portrayed areas far beyond the cartographer's knowledge. In the place of detail and accuracy were images of dragons and sea monsters and lions. The unknown was unsettling. In the place of certainty was fear. On an unknown territory on one globe dating back to around 1510, we see the words, here be dragons. I wonder if the things you do not know scare you. I wonder if there are dragons on your map. While we have compiled the details of the world, and we've got globes and maps with all of the streets and the topography, there are still things in our modern world that we don't know. We don't know the future. We don't know how things will turn out. 
We don't know if the sacrifices we make today are worth it. We don't know if the investments we make today will be fruitful tomorrow. We don't know when we will die. Worse, we don't know how we will die. And humans, according to our natural knowledge, do not know what comes after death. The unknown can be haunting, filled with dragons, sea monsters, and lions taken to the edge of human knowledge, we look across the abyss of uncertainty and we worry. You do not know is the theme of this passage. There are things you do not know. In verse 5, we see you do not know. Again, in verse 5, we see you do not know. In verse 6, you do not know. Because of the unknown, and because of our anxieties as it relates to the unknown, we are affected in every aspect of our life. Let me give you some examples. I did not fix a hinge in my house because of fear that the outcome would not be what I want it to be. And wasted time, wasted labor, wasted money. Fear of the unknown prevents me from doing things that I could do today. We risk loving a church member when we've been hurt in the past and we don't want to get hurt again. Fear of the unknown causes us to fail in our risk of investing in certain aspects of our career because of the uncertainty. We fail to risk rejection in bold evangelism. We fail to risk our future security through generosity. You see, fear of the unknown paralyzes us today. Are you with me? Some are so focused on the anxieties of where they are not that they miss the opportunities of where they are. Let me say that again. Some are so focused on the anxieties of where they are not that they miss the opportunities of where they are. We're in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going through a series through this book, and the author, he calls himself the preacher, has been taking us us on a journey under the sun, seeking to find fulfillment and satisfaction under the sun. Meaning, if the things that we can see and touch and feel are the horizontal reality of life, There's also a vertical reality of life. That is our relationship with God. For the preacher, under the sun, is a nickname for the horizontal. 
It's as if he's saying, let's take out the vertical. Let's take God out of the equation. Let's just for a moment pretend that there is no God. And let's go on a research project and check out pleasure and check out knowledge and check out wisdom and check out money and check out success and see if in the horizontal reality of life I can find some kind of ultimate satisfaction. And as we've been going on through the book of Ecclesiastes, what we have discovered over and over and over again is this. If we take God out of the equation, everything is vanity. It's all pointless. It's all empty. We're, we're just like clouds, big, beautiful clouds that are gone tomorrow that nobody remembers, that fade away. But he does not leave us with depression. I actually have gotten to the point where I'm almost offended when people tell me that the writer of Ecclesiastes was depressed. I don't think he was. He may have been at some point, but I think he's artistically showing us where he finds hope. And that is this vertical reality that keeps smashing through the horizontal. And what he shows us is that the knowledge of God, the sovereign one, fills what was previously empty. And so here we are at the end of the book. We're coming to the conclusion in chapter 11 and chapter 12. And we're going to take this conclusion in four different sermons. The last sermon will be kind of a summary in verses 9 through 13 of chapter 12. But before we get there, there's three main points of conclusion. With all of that said, with the whole book of Ecclesiastes taken into consideration, three points of application that will be our next three sermons. Number one today, work hard, verses 1 through 6. Number two, in a couple weeks, have joy, verses 7 through 10. Number three, which will take us into chapter 12, fear God. Live quorum Deo, live in the face of God. Pursue holiness, pursue godliness. So let's start today in verses 1 through 6, as we've already read of chapter 11, on this theme, work hard. And that's clearly his theme in these six verses. In verse 1 and 2, he says, Cast your bread upon the waters for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. What he's saying is, is this. He's saying be courageous in your investments. Don't be stingy with what you have, but be generous with what you have. The fool takes the talent that the Lord gives him and buries it in the ground to hide it out of, out of fear of what might come. Fear of, I don't know how this investment is going to turn out. What does the wise do? The wise invests it generously, uses what the Lord has given him, uses the opportunities, uses the moment, uses the giftings, and multiplies what the Lord has given. Cast your bread upon the waters is likely an old, ancient way of saying, sow your seed. Perhaps it, it would envision someone taking the grain to the merchant ship and putting the grain on the merchant ship, casting their bread on the waters to take it off to sell it down the river uh, so that they might have a profit. And he's saying, in your investments, as you cast your bread upon the waters, hoping for a good return, he's saying, be bold in that. Verse 2, he says, give a portion of seven, maybe eight. Seven is the number of completion. So he's saying, give, give, a, give a, a complete 
kind of investment. And then go beyond that. Be very generous in what you give out into this world. Now, is he talking about financial investments? That's the image that comes to our mind. Or is he talking about spiritual investments? Or is he talking about our labor? Or our investment of love? Or our, our investment in ministry? Or is he talking about our, our, talking about our investment of time? And I propose it's all of the above. What he's saying is, in all the things that God has given you, in every opportunity, from money to time to love to ministry to servanthood, in every opportunity that God has given you, in all of your work, he's saying, give it your best shot. That's what he's saying. Give life your best shot. Give your church your best shot. Give your wife your best shot. Give your family your best shot. Give your job your very best shot in all that you do. Give it your best because that moment is a moment that God has given you. So, send that email. Spend money on the program that you need to take. S open a savings account. Put some money away. Think about a retirement fund and give that your best shot. Or in your relationships, have that person over for dinner. Make that phone call that you know you need to make. Meaning God has given us these opportunities. We are to give it our all. Spiritually, yes. Spiritually as well. Jesus, he, he kind of rethought investments for us. He says, invest not here where, where moth and rust can destroy, you know, certainly there's a place to save for the future, or retirement, things of that nature, investments. But Jesus says your greatest investments are not what you're storing up on this earth, but it's what you store up in heaven, where neither must, moth nor rust destroy nor thieves break in and steal. Meaning, invest in God's work through generosity. Investing your time into evangelism. Investing your time and your money and your resources into hospitality and discipleship. According to Jesus, the measure with which you give is the measure with which you get. Now, this isn't Jesus teaching karma or something like this. He's not talking about magic. He's just simply saying it's logic. A house is built little by little. We write an essay, one word at a time. And the measure that you give to it is going to reflect in the grade that you get back. So the call here is to work hard, or what I'm going to just simply call a bold investment. Investing all that God has given you and giving everything your very best shot. Secondly, though, in this text, we see our problem because we all have an issue with this. In verse 3 and 4, our problem is paralyzing anxiety. Look at verse 3. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, it will lie. What he's saying is, 
that there is uncertain disaster and unfavorable circumstances which lurk in every corner. Verse 3 is a little strange, and the interpretation is a bit hard to understand, but I think we can understand the interpretation of verse 3 in light of its surrounding context. What does he mean that rain clouds are about to burst? What does he mean that a tree is about to fall and it's going to lie where it falls? Well, in verse 4, he takes us into a lesson from farming, and he shows us the man who's always looking at the wind. He's always looking at the clouds, wondering what's going to happen with the weather. And then going back to verse 2, you see that he says, for nobody knows what disaster may happen on earth. And then he goes straight into verse 3. You see, he's showing us a picture of disaster. So rain and the tree falling for him is imminent, possible, potential, uncertain disaster. Meaning at any moment, the clouds could open up and rain. Torrential downpour. And rain so much that the ground gets soft and trees begin to fall over. His point then is in verse 4. He says, He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Here he's talking about the farmer. And he's saying the farmer who knows that he's got to get out and sow his seed into the field, but he's always looking at the wind. He's observing the wind. And he's, he's like, you know, I don't know if today is a good day to get out and sow my seed. Because I'm looking at this wind and I feel like a storm might be kicking up. And so he just holds on to his grain. He says the farmer that is always looking at the clouds never harvests. Meaning, I don't know. I mean, I know i got to get out and harvest my fields, but look at, that, look at that gray cloud. That one looks a bit ominous. That one might be a, rain, a rainstorm coming. Maybe I'll harvest tomorrow. He never gets to it. His point is that focusing on potential problems in the future paralyzes our action today. Worry about the future pillages our energy for work. Man, I know I got to do this work. I know I got to write this paper. I know I got to send this email. I know I got to make this phone call. I know I got to get ready for work. But, but I don't know. I'm looking at the wind. That one cloud over there, that's concerning to me. I'm not exactly sure how this is going to go. Maybe I'll do it tomorrow. Maybe I'll do it tomorrow. What do we call that? Procrastination, right? You see, some of you have seed in your hand. An opportunity right in front of you to get up and get moving and get out and make progress and do the next thing. But you don't. Why? Because you're paralyzed by uncertainty. Procrastination. It leads to harm. It leads to destruction, meaning the seed is never sown, and you eventually are hungry. The harvest is always delayed, and maybe tomorrow, and you never get to it, and the harvest rots. It leads to destruction. Can I give you some regular life examples of this? You need to pay a bill. 
Help us, Jesus. You need to pay a bill. And you're looking at the bill. It's not that much. But you're looking at what you have in your bank account, and you're like, ah, I don't know if I want to spend all that money on this bill. Maybe tomorrow. I can't do it right now. Fear that if you pay this bill, you might not have enough by the end of the month. You ever been there? What happens? You look at the bill the next time, there's a late fee. They just charge you 25 bucks. It just went up. Now, you, now it's really getting hard to afford. Pretty soon they cut it off. And there's a $250 turn-on fee. You ever been there? My point is this. Fear of the future leads to procrastination of what we could do, ought to do, in the moment. But we're too afraid to make that investment. And so we put it off, and we put it off, and we end up shooting ourselves in the foot. A couple other examples. You hear of a friend who's grieving the loss of their mother. You delay calling your friend because you are afraid that you won't know what to say. So maybe I'll call them later tonight. Maybe I'll call them tomorrow. Maybe I'll call them tomorrow. I don't know. What if I say something stupid? I'm concerned, uncertainty, uncertainty. And you never call them. And then a month goes by and your friend is upset with you. And they finally confess, it, confess to you that they were hurt that you never called them when their mother died. You've got to submit your resume, an opportunity to get a job. But the clouds of rejection seem imminent. Your resume doesn't look good enough, so you don't put it out there. And the job gets filled. You feel moved to give $20 to, to a single mother who needs diapers. But you're not sure if you're going to need or want that $20. And so you say, maybe I'll do it later. And then you miss the blessing of helping. You see my point? Like in every aspect of life, we are prone to not take the opportunity that God has given us out of fear of uncertainty. And the procrastination leads to destruction. You see, the other side, I believe, of laziness is fear. It's fear. I think laziness can be a habit of procrastination based on our fears. Fears of the unknown, anxiety of the future, all of the what-ifs. We don't work hard because we don't know. Or I could turn that around and I could say because we don't have certainty on the outcome. We don't know for sure that our work will produce what we want it to produce. Therefore, we're tempted to just not work at all. All right, so what's our solution? Number three, here's our solution. Our solution is the way of faith. In verse 5 and 6, very clear, it's what he says. Verse 5 leads us to the author's climax. He says, as you don't know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you don't know the work of God who makes everything. 
what he's saying is, is, yes, there are things you don't know. You don't know what those clouds might do. You don't know whether that tree might fall. You don't know the outcome of your labors. That's true. But he's saying this, you also don't know how the embryo gets a soul. You also don't know God's work, who, by the way, makes everything. You see what he's saying to us? Meaning, if the seed that you put in the ground actually comes up with a harvest, it's the work of God. If the rain holds off and allows you to go out and gather in a harvest, it's the work of God. Meaning, God controls the outcome of all things. You're delaying. You're delaying because you don't know the outcome. But what we're told here is that the outcome belongs to God. He's the maker of all things. Oh, but He doesn't make things sometimes as quickly as we want, right? My wife was delaying in her preparation of dinner last night. Actually, she wasn't delaying. It was just right on time. Chapman calls uh, uh, whoever's making food a maker, and he said to my wife, he said, you are a slow maker. And I thought, man, of my sermon, sometimes, are you with me? <laughs> we look at God and we're like, I, I can smell it. <laughs> but you are a slow maker. You see, God works in His time for His purposes for your good. Not a minute sooner, not a minute delayed. So since God is the maker, what we see here is the, the vertical smashing through the horizontal once again. It's as if the preacher has placed his finger under your chin and lifted your face toward heaven. And he's saying God is the primary worker in all things. The divine. He is the giver of life in the womb. Therefore, He is the creator of all things. He's the giver of your current life. He's the giver of your future life. God is the creator of pleasure. God is the designer of the material. He is the one who came before, and He is the one who will be after. Since God is the maker then, we are called to steward the opportunity, the seed, that He has placed in our hand. This is our application in verse 6. Look at verse 6. He says, In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand. Meaning, from morning until evening, all day long, work hard. Get to work. Do the next thing. Why? Well, he goes on, for, here's the reason, you don't know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. He's saying, do the next thing that you've got. Write the next word. Open the next email. Send the next letter. Make the next phone call. Do the next thing. Why? Because you don't know what God is going to do. You don't know whether or not this thing or that thing is going to produce something beautiful and wonderful. Or maybe he'll use it all to produce something beautiful and wonderful. 
Back to the farmer. What the preacher is saying to the farmer is this. Mr. Farmer, you are afraid that the weather might turn. And as a result of your fear, you are procrastinating. And that procrastination is turning into lethargy. Don't you realize, Mr. Farmer, that your real frustration is that you want to be God? Don't you realize, Mr. Farmer, that you only act if you know what only God can know? You only take the next step if you can guarantee the outcome. And what he's saying is that the outcome is in the hands of God. Don't you understand, saints, original sin permeates our existence as human beings. What was the original sin? We want to be God. Oh, did God say don't eat that fruit? He's just trying to keep you from being like Him. Eat that fruit. We don't want God to be God. We want to know the future. We want to secure the outcome. That's our issue here. The issue is this. Check it out. It's simple. We don't trust God. We lack in our trust. Now we believe, but God help my unbelief. I mean, what are our options, saints? We could go on continuing to not trust God, pretending as if God doesn't exist. But that doesn't cure our problem. We still don't know the future. We still can't guarantee the outcome. Or, like some do, we could idolize success and money and make success and money our God. But what a foolish idea that is. For now we've exchanged God for a God that is completely unstable. Who you know not will be there in the future. Or we could hunker down and cling to what we have and become stingy with white knuckles and tight fists and hang on to our resources and our opportunities and our talents and our love. Or we could trust God. We could learn to trust Him. We could learn to see every opportunity that He's put into our hands as part of His providence. And with that opportunity, we could just take the next step, do the next thing, and give it our all. Recognizing God is God frees us to hard work. Recognizing that God is God, not me, frees me to work hard with the moment he's given me. Zach Eswine puts it like this. He says, when the unknown taunts your mind within the season you find yourself, give yourself to the next thing in the place you are. Our way forward, more often than not, is found where we are. When a disquieting thing breaks someone's life, what do you do? We bring food, we wash dishes for them, we sit, listen in the quiet, and offer our space-giving presence. We take a walk, we send a card, we spend a few days at a friend's home, a child offers their Batman stickers or her drawings. We do the next thing at work. We wait, we watch. 
And then in the morning and at evening, we sow our seed and we do the next thing. After all, who knows what God will do? Don't you understand that writer's block often comes to the writer because the writer is concerned about the end product? How the critic is going to take it? Whether or not it's going to be good? Whether or not it's going to be a good grade? Whether or not this will be received well? Do you know what the expert writers encourage writers to do? To get over writer's block? Put one word on the paper and then another word, and then another word. Take the next step. Little by little, the house is built. All right, what's our application? Let me give you three points of application, and we're done. Number one, work hard for the good of mankind. Work hard for the good of mankind. We have such a problem in broader society where people don't want to work. And I'm not stereotyping the poor, saying the poor are poor because they don't want to work. As a matter of fact, some of the hardest working people I know are poor. I'm saying the broader problem that we have in society of people who don't want to work are those who come from an educated and privileged background, who have bought into the Instagram real narrative that life ought to be travel and leisure and ease, and freedom. Ecclesiastes brings us face to face with faith in God only to drive us back into the earth with the message, be useful, give it your all. Invest seven, even eight. Send your bread out on the waters. Use what God has given you. Use that gifting. Use that opportunity. Use that education. Use that skill that you have. Use that love that you have. Use that compassion you have. Use those prayers that you have. Spend yourselves. Work hard. Do the next thing. Not because you can predict the weather. Not because you know every territory on the map. But because you can trust God with the things you don't know. So number one, work hard for the good of mankind. Number two, work hard to the glory of God. Work hard to the glory of God. Meaning, it's not just about the horizontal, but life has come to us. And Jesus himself said, don't merely store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but in heaven. As we spend ourselves in our work or in our communities, in our homes, in our churches. We spend ourselves not for the glory of man, but for the glory of God. If God gives life, then that means that our free and joyful labor on earth is a sign of us trusting God, working for His glory. And this has this spiritual dimension to it. Loving is risky. But if we love freely, we know that God, we display God's glory knowing that God can make things beautiful. 
heal where there have been hurts. Sharing the gospel is risky because with sharing the gospel with your neighbor, there can be rejection. But as we share the gospel freely and willingly, we're giving God glory knowing that the outcome is in His hands. And that God has the ability to make dead things come alive. Oh, like Ezekiel. What was it that God told Ezekiel to do in order to bring a valley of dry bones to life? He was to speak the Word of God. And as that Word was spoken over the valley of dry bones, the bones began to rattle and come together. And he continued to speak the Word and ligaments connected the bones, bone to bone, and Muscles and flesh then covered the bones and before him was a valley of bodies and he continued to speak the word of God and God's very breath entered into the bodies and they stood as an army of men. God controls the outcome. We just simply are stewards of the message he's given us. Do you believe that the word of God can bring life? Invest the word of God in dead souls. Invest the Word of God in your brothers and sisters in your church and in your family and watch God move. Number three, work hard with faith in God. So my three points of application, work hard for the good of mankind, work hard for the glory of God, and work hard with faith in God. The whole of the Christian life is a life of faith. And I don't mean that we have faith that God is going to make your situation get better. God has never promised that every situation you're in will get better. That's the stuff that the prosperity gospel is made of, and it's not actual true Christianity. Sometimes God allows us to remain in a bad situation. But He's promised us something better than temporarily fixing your situation. He's promised that He will never leave you and that He will never forsake you. He's promised that every single thing that happens is working together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So this is huge, church. What He's saying is that it means that even our failures are not really failures. Our bad investments are not really bad. Things that don't work out are still, in some fashion, according to God's providence and according to His sovereignty, working together for your good. And it's mind-wrecking to think about. But that's the glory of God in every detail of life. So, Christian, spend yourself on behalf of the hungry. Satisfy the needs of the pressed. And then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. You will be like a well-watered garden. Come on, somebody, say amen. Like a spring whose waters never fail. I'm skipping ahead, cheating here a little bit, going to next week's passage, next two weeks, three weeks passage. But look at verse 7 really quick. He says, light is sweet 
and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. He's immediately turning us to the beauty of light. And let me just close with this. Don't you know that the light of the world took on flesh? And it is sweet to look upon. He is the one who taught us to give life our all. He is the one who told us to invest in heaven. He's the one who exhorted us if you, see, if you seek to save your life in this world, you lose it. But he says, if you lose your life for my sake, oh, there you will find it. Meaning he's called us to live our life for him. Oh, but how can we trust him? How can we trust this teacher? We can trust this teacher because this teacher is also our Savior. Oh, if you're not a Christian here, I want you to know that Jesus lived the life that you should have lived, died the death you should have died. Not only has He commanded us to live for Him, but He lived for us. He lost His life so that we might live. Saints, Christ went into the greatest unknown. He went off the edges of the map. He journeyed to a territory that no man uh, from which has ever returned. He entered into the place of darkness. He went into death itself. But on that first day of the week, the grave was empty. He came out the other end. And He's left us a map. Oh, all who are tired, all who are weary, come to Me and I will give you rest. You see, the greatest uncertainty for the Christian is death. But even that is changed by Jesus Christ. According to the Apostle Paul, to die is to be present with the Lord. To die is even great gain. So Christian, where are the sea monsters? Where are the lions? They don't exist. The great unknown has been traversed and our Savior awaits us on the other side with open arms. Death itself is defeated. The grave itself is robbed of its horror. So for the Christian, there are no dragons. Therefore, for us to live is Christ. We live in Christ and we live for Christ. I wonder if somebody can praise God that Jesus worked for us. Can you praise Him, church, that Jesus did not cling to His own life when the dark clouds covered Him in Gethsemane? He did not procrastinate when it came time to walk to Calvary. He did not falter when He spent all that He had on our salvation. Can somebody give Him glory? Can somebody give Him glory that His work is effective for us and for our salvation? His investment saw no loss. The seed He has planted has been fruitful. And so for, for me to live, for us to live, is Christ. And to die is gain.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, the message of Christ, the hope that we have in Jesus. God, thank you that the vertical crashed into the horizontal, that that which was above the sun came under the sun so that we under the sun might know you and worship you and glorify you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.